Welcome, welcome to all of you listening in from all over the world. Welcome to this event on responding to a pandemic, a view from Latin America. We have an extraordinary lineup today for you uh, to discuss this incredibly important issue. We have five presidents uh, from the region, uh, and they are no ordinary presidents. <laughs> in a world where liberal democracy is under siege in many parts of the world, these five leaders were known for their commitment to human rights, to civil liberties, and to democratic institutions. And in a world in which populism is, uh, is prevalent in many parts of the world, often taking the, the place of responsible policymaking, these five leaders showed it was possible to govern, relying on dialogue, reason, and evidence to craft public policies. They will talk to us today about their perspective on the current pandemic in Latin America, a region which was hit later than East Asia or Europe or North America, but its tragic effects are now being shown with a full force, particularly in Brazil, which has become the new epicenter of the coronavirus. The success of the region in containing this virus will depend on the policies that governments put into place. But that task is going to be especially challenging in, a, in, in countries with weak hospital and healthcare systems, where family members from several generations live together, and when one third of the labor force works informally without a contract and without social protection. For the nations in Latin America, COVID-19 represents five different shocks, not just one. There is, of course, the health shock, but there's also the sharp drop in commodity prices, the massive contraction in export volumes, the loss of income from tourism and remittances, and the unprecedented capital outflow that we are witnessing. Now, the policy response to this five-fold shock will, of course, depend on countries' fiscal space and the ability of the international institutions to mobilize the necessary resources and support. But of course, it will depend most of all on the quality of leadership and the decisions of those leaders. And so with that, let me turn to those leaders who've done it before to get their perspective on what's happening and what should happen. And I'll introduce them one by one and they'll each speak for about five or six minutes and then we'll open it up for a conversation between them. I'm going to start with Fernando Enrique Cardoso, who served as two terms as president of Brazil from 1995 to 2002, having previously served as a senator, a minister of foreign relations, and minister of finance. He has been a member of the Elders since that group was formed in 2007, and he's just stepped down recently from that role in 2016. I'm also proud to say that he holds an honorary degree from the London School of Economics and Political Science, of which I am the director. President Cardoso, over to you. And uh, all my colleagues, we are now trying to understand and to help what's going on in Latin America. Let me start by saying what, to my mind, is occurring in our country. First of all, is that, is that we are facing this pandemic, which is uh, something very uh, unusual uh, in the sense that we don't know how the pandemic will evolve. We don't know any vaccine, vaccine, and we don't know as well specific medicine to take care of the, those who are ill. So the only defense we have up to now is stay at home. Okay. Uh, how is it possible in a country like ours, we, some, you refer to the fact that one third of Latin America 
the population is out of jobs, they have not, not no more jobs, how can we ask them to stay at home? For those who know poverty, and I start my career as sociologist dealing with blacks and dealing with religions within the black culture. Wow. So I know, not, not just by reading, but by the direct experience, what is to be a poor in my country. Wow. How can we ask them to stay at home? The home is very often worse than to stay on the streets, so they go to the streets. Even in, in rich countries, cities like Sao Paulo, if you look and TV is showing uh, the periphery of the, the city, well, people are moving uh, very, very easily uh, on the streets without any preoccupation and sometimes even without the protection, the necessary protection, not all of them. So this is the situation. We are dealing with a virus, which is not perfectly well known by scientists. We don't know what to do. The only solution we have is to stay at home. It is difficult because of inequalities, because of poverty. Well, so I have to add to that when this pandemic starts, we are trying to recover economically from a bad situation. And this bad situation is not due to the, to the current government. It came before, starts before. And there are cycles in the economy, as I know. But then how we are aggravated by the lack of attention to the uh, question of employment. Hopefully, since the new constitution in 88, in 1988, I was a member of the Constitutional Assembly at the time, we decided to organize a, a public service for for everyone, a universal public system, health system, which is works at least. So hopefully we have the, the system will take care of everyone in, in Brazil. What is happening now? Now, if you add the economic previous situations plus the current situation, unemployment is expanding and income is diminishing in poor poor part of Brazilian society. So they are looking after the public health system. The public health system is almost in crisis. It has no more possibility to, well, to take care of people. So we, we, we are in a very difficult moment in our, in our life. On top of that, we have a political situation which is hard to deal with. Why? First of all, all around the world, in the, when democracy is so rooted, we are speaking about the crisis of representative democracy. The crisis of representative democracy probably is a consequence of the fact that new technologies allow people to get together directly. They are jumping into structures, institutions, and they are asking for their participation and their need, they are claiming, they are voicing, and the government has the need some, you know, more time to take care of, of, of the implementation of, of policies. Well, this is, of course, in Brazil, in UK, all around. But in Brazil, you have this and also the fact that the, 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 the party now is in power. It's not exactly a party, it's a leadership. The leader which is in power at the beginning of the pandemic believed that it was not necessary to take care of that. Why? Because we need to take care of the economy. 
of course, the economies are important, we have to balance. We, we cannot keep forever everything closed, but anyhow, we cannot just open as if it, it, nothing will occur because the health system will immediately suffer. So, my, I would say more because of the rhetoric than in practice, the, the president says things which are not sensible. Uh, and people believe that it's, 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 a, it's a decision. Then the other day, he goes back. So, uh, oscillation. So, uh, if the, 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 the medical doctor is saying he stay at home, even Minister of Health, from time to time, they are crashing. I mean, the minister with the president. So, the, the, in the last two weeks, we lost two ministers of, of health, which is unbelievable, in the middle of a, a pandemic situation, you see. And from time to time, there are expressions of disdain coming from the, the top of power with regard to what is occurring in the Brazil in situation. It's probably in the, in the coming months, every pandemic has, has a, have a, a stop, it will finish, okay. The point is, what will the cost of this finishing of the pandemic? How many people will die with the pandemic? So, and then, how many will be unemployed? And it's possible that after the, the health, health crisis, we'll have a political situation very difficult because people will try to ask for more. And people now have instruments. They can, act, they can connect each other through internet. They, can, they are doing that. They know what's occurring. So they will ask for more. They, well, I hope that at least one or two lessons can be uh, taken from what is occurring in present in current days. The first one, is inequalities. The inequality cannot be treated as if it will be a natural thing. The inequality in Brazil is very high, not just in Brazil, in Latin America. But uh, I, I, I saw yesterday data on what's occurring now in Brazil. Inequality is increasing. The Gini coefficient is showing very clearly that you are be, become more inequals. Well, I hope this, after the, the pandemic crisis, people will understand that it's important to take care of policies, implementing more egalitarian measures. Because the Congress is trying to do something. The Congress is trying to expand, to give money for those who are in, in, in necessity of money. I remember when I was in Senate, a discussion about the, what now is, is, is normally usually called the universal income was discussed in Congress. I, I, will, I voted in favor, but then how? Uh, then there is in our constitution one uh, prescription who says, well, we have to tax big fortunes. I did when I was senator. And I asked my, my colleague at the time, Senator Roberto Campos, which is a man, conservative guy, now his son, uh, not to his son, it's something very close to him. He's the president of Brazilian Central Bank. And I, the, 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 the proposal was, was made by Roberto Campos and myself, including in my own family. At the time, my son was married to a family which was bankers. In my own family, the reaction was enormous. So those who have money, those who have interests, those who have power, don't like to, to, to speak about inequalities in normal days. When we are living, we're crossing, as now, a, a, a very bad moment, it's possible to speak about 
I hope in the future it will be possible to speak about inequalities. And also, we have to be more capable to anticipate what can occur. Look what happened now. Of course, nobody knows uh, when a virus like this one will occur. It, it, it's senseless to try to, to imagine that it was produced because of China interest and things like that. Anyhow, but the propagation virus now is very simple. It's possible that in the future we'll face different virus, but very similar in terms of, of the consequences of the virus with respect to people's health. So we have to anticipate these things. I believe that in the future, what will be necessary is to give more attention to science and technology and income distribution together. Science and technology, because the future will be also controlled by those who have capacity to produce new technologies and to be uh, to understand how to, to deal with new technologies. So uh, this is a, one of the lessons we have to extract from the crisis. But I will say, and this will be my last comment for beginning with, uh, I think that we are far Westerns. I remember I had a, a colleague, a political scientist, who became ambassador, France ambassador, to Buenos Aires and to Rio. Uh, and he, he used to, uh, to a new concept of extreme West. We have extreme East. No, we are extreme Westerns. So for, for, for us, freedom and people, each one, individuals, have a, a weight, maybe much more than in you, uh, in China or Japan or in, or, or in the East. This is like that. So we have to conciliate our sentiment, which is a cultural sentiment. Culture means something which introduced, rooted in the soul of, of, of the nation. In, 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 in our culture, we have to, have to preserve freedom, individualism, and rules, democracy. So how to do that? How to do that in a situation of unemployment, in a situation of bad health, people's health situation, and disaggregation, because we are disaggregating, and the society tends toward a disaggregation. It's more, in the UK, you have the Brexit from, from, from one important event, the congregation of all European countries. So now, the voice of in favor of nationalism are back again. And how to compatibilize what is necessary to look after the interests of the nation with international solidarity. How to rebuild the world system, not to destroy the world system, but to rebuild the world system. How to, I think this is maybe the main task of people like us who have some experience in dealing with national and international situations to try to uh, in the future, to, to, to give more voice to these uh, objectives. So, not simple, difficult, but have to keep hope. It's very important for political leadership to keep hope, to give uh, uh, ways out of, the, of, of the, the, the situation which we are involved, all of us are involved. I know it's a bad situation, but we have possibility to go ahead. So let's reinforce, not now, now we have to look at the people solidarity, to express our personal solidarity to those who are suffering with poverty and, and, and the virus, the coronavirus. But then we have to open up 
her roles in the economy and society. Take care of inequalities and to understand that to combat, to, to fight the inequalities, we need to have economic growth. And economic growth cannot be by each one, each country in isolation, which will require some cooperation. Very simple to say, but very difficult to implement. I hope my colleagues will be able to implement. I hope Thank you. Thank you so much, President Cardoso. Let me turn now to Laura Chinchilla, who started life as a political scientist and then became a practitioner of politics as the Minister of Public Security, an elected member of National Congress, Vice President of Costa Rica, and then was elected for a four-year term as President of Costa Rica in 2010. President Chinchilla, what are your thoughts? Uh, thank you and hello everybody. It is a pleasure for me to share this virtual stage with my dear colleagues uh, from Latin America. Uh, the first thing I would like to say is that COVID has the potential to affect uh, people across all nations uh, in mostly the same aspects, but its impact and consequences, both short and long term, will differ from one nation to another. Uh, in the case of Latin America, uh, the consequences look quite devastating, not only in relation uh, to the health system, but also in light of the foreseen economic, social, and political consequences concerning the uh, health aspects. It is rather difficult, I would say, at this point, to establish some kind of regional patterns. Uh, up to now, what we can see is a patchwork of different responses given by the states. However, it is clear that we are much more oblig obliged to, um, than, than the East Asian and European countries to act preventively, so as not to compromise and exhaust our uh, limited hospital uh, capacities. Indeed, we have to recognize that we have severe limitations as measured in terms of beds, physicians, and nurses per capita. On the economic and social fronts, uh, the anticipated effects seem very negative. According to the IMF, the region will experience an economic contraction of minus 5.2% more than two points below uh, the estimated global average of minus 3%. So although most countries have announced subsidies and supportive measures for households and businesses in need, the resources available to governments are extremely limited at this point. As comparison, while our nations have committed the equivalent of 4% of GDP as an average to attend to respond to the crisis, the OECD countries will allocate more than 60% of GDP. That means four times more than us. In great measure, the problem is that the crisis comes, as uh, President Cardoso already said, uh, in a really bad moment for Latin America. The situation today is quite different from the situation that we had to face uh, 10 years ago, when the international financial crisis hit us uh, in 2008. For example, whereas in 2007, the average economic growth was 6%, in the end of last year, 
uh, it only reached 0.1% uh, rate. Uh, and public debt in 2008 was 12 points below the 52% with which we closed last year. So we have very limited fiscal space to respond to the crisis. Um, moreover, in the last six to seven years, other social indicators got worse, such as poverty uh, and inequality. In addition, we had a very significant sector, and you mentioned Minuchin uh, during the introduction, we have a very significant sector of the economy under informality, which stands for around uh, 140 million people. In some countries, it represents 50 to 80 percent of the working population. Uh, the Economic Commission for Latin America estimated that poverty will increase more than four points as a result of the crisis, which represents at least 35 more uh, people, 35 million more people living in poverty. In addition to this very complex scenario, we must take into account also the fragility of some political and institutional variables as well. Uh, in, recent, in recent years, support for democracy in Latin America has decreased as a result of a generalized negative perception uh, of politics and government performances. Uh, according to the Latino Barometro poll, satisfaction with democracy has been steadily decreasing from 44% in 2008 to 44% in 2018 almost the double. Uh, so we reach uh, the lowest point uh, register ever. We must also remember the, um, that the uh, last year, anger and dissatisfaction with politics and public institutions' performance turned into violent expressions on the streets of several Latin American cities, putting government, uh, governments in distress. However, having said this, um, and despite the magnitude of uh, these challenges, uh, we have internal, regional, and international tools that can help it in the task of working towards full economic and social recovery. But we will need to use all our institutional arsenal, all the material, human, on financial instruments at hand, and even more, something, something which tends to be the heavier tax in our region. Political agreements facilitating a shared vision and a roadmap allowing us to emerge from the crisis. To finish, uh, we must, um, we must uh, acknowledge uh, that once the crisis passes, we won't go back to the starting point. It is only for us to decide whether we want to arrive to a better or worse destination than the one from which we departed. Latin America certainly deserves a better destination. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll turn now to Juan Manuel Santos, who's former president of the Republic of Colombia, having served two terms as president from 2010 to 2018. In 2016, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his extraordinary efforts to bring peace to Colombia. 
I'm also proud to say that he's an alumna of the London School of Economics and Political Science and also has an honorary uh, doctorate from the school. President Santos. Thank you, Madam Director, and uh, greetings to my colleagues and friends. Uh, to Andres Velasco, thank you for organizing uh, this uh, seminar. What we have to uh, take into account from the Latin American perspective, first of all, something that all the world is, uh, is uh, suffering, which is uh, we still are in a, with a high degree of uncertainty. We are still uh, trying to navigate in uncharted waters. So we are uh, really very, very uh, in a very weak position. Second, Latin America, as I'm trying to say in the rest of the world, but especially in Latin America, we are suffering from a, a pathetic lack of leadership. Uh, we, we are not seeing uh, any voice, official voice from Latin America. The institutions that uh, we created, like the OAS, have been uh, uh, completely side, uh, to one side, they have not taken a, a, a proactive role. Um, we have to sell to the world uh, the idea that unless everybody solves the problem, the world will never solve the problem of the virus. Um, if, we, we, if we don't realize that, if we, if we don't sell that, uh, that uh, concept, that unless everybody is cured, nobody is cured, then we're going to be in a very, uh, very weak position. And uh, fourthly, the politics uh, in Latin America, because of the environment, because of the special situation we're living, the political consequences will be very, very um, um, negative. Now, what I, I would, like to shortly uh, make a reference to, to these points. In the health system, um, we are uh, with a, uh, a very uh, weak position because we have a lot of bottlenecks, uh, access to the equipment. Um, most of the countries don't have access to enough equipment. And uh, something very bizarre is, is uh, something very bizarre is happening. In today's Financial Times, there's an article that says that Ethiopia, Ethiopian Airlines is becoming the supplier to Latin America uh, because the equipment that is coming from China through the U.S. has been confiscated, um, which is quite a, a very strange and bizarre situation. Uh, so. What we're seeing is the increase of the people that are infected and uh, the supply of the equipment to confront that situation is, uh, is uh, getting uh, weaker and weaker. So uh, we're going to confront a very difficult situation in terms of, of, uh, of what um, we have to do. Now, uh, that is on the health uh, side. On the economic side, um, 
there was a phrase that my former minister of finance uh, used uh, some days ago. Um, Europe, for example, can uh, do whatever it takes. But in Latin America, we cannot do that. We do whatever we can. And unfortunately, we can do very little at this time. Our access to the extra financing is almost dry. Uh, precisely, the, my colleagues here, uh, we signed a letter with Andres Velasco and many economists uh, some weeks ago when the spring meetings of the IMF were going to be held, asking for extra finance for the SDRs and uh, the United States vetoed uh, a decision in that direction. So we must find a way to make our, our, our voice heard uh, in the international institutions, in the G20, in order to have much more access to financing uh, to Latin America, because we're in a sandwich. The rich countries can finance themselves. Sometimes they, they help the poorest countries, but the Latin American countries, the medium income, middle income countries, uh, will be in a very difficult position. Now, we have another problem that I hope that we can address. Uh, it is our dependence on the credit agencies. Many of the countries who have a rather responsible fiscal policy pay uh, attention to what the credit agencies do, uh, and uh, the credit agencies uh, simply have a, a, a list of of numbers and say, if you're doing uh, okay, we will grade you high. If you're doing badly, we'll grade you low. Now, the fear of being, uh, for the countries who have investing grade, of being taken off that list uh, is a tremendous limitation for the Latin American countries. So we must address uh, that point also. And uh, uh, we are also seeing something which is very, very, uh, detrimental to Latin America. There was an article uh, last week in the, I think it was the New York Times, by the U.S. Uh, Special Trade Representative, Lighthizer, saying the world needs, and uh, this is what we're going through, is the proof that we need uh, to reshore, to bring again to the uh, rich countries uh, other production that is distributed around the world. This is uh, contrary to the Latin American interest, which we have invested for many, many years uh, in the benefits of globalization. All of these countries that are represented today in this panel and all of the Latin American countries have free trade agreements, have uh, supported uh, the World Trade Organization, and uh, we have done that because uh, the law of the jungle doesn't benefit Latin America. And uh, therefore, we need, we need also to counter these forces, this anti-globalization forces, because that goes uh, completely against the interest of Latin America. And uh, I am quite um, worried about the political uh, implications of of, the, of what we're going through. Uh, once the 
virus is over. We're going to confront, as has been said here, a very difficult situation. We're going to be in a deep recession. The poverty, the poverty, um, um, uh, the, the poverty rates way up. The unemployment rates way up. The cycle of the elections start next year, and so next year the discussions of who's going to pay, how is the cost going to be distributed, and how are we going to address inequality and uh, unemployment is the, the most fertile uh, terrain for something that in Latin America, unfortunately, we have had for 200 years. It's called the caudillismo. It's a Latin American populism. And we're going to see the most fertile ground for that caudillismo, for that populism, be it of the right or of the left. And so uh, the, the centrist forces, the, the ones who believe in liberal democracies, uh, must make themselves heard uh, to a much more extent, uh, because what we're seeing, unfortunately, is going against what uh, I think all of us here uh, today believe in. And so we must counteract that. I stop there. Microphone. Thank you so much, President Santos. And let me turn now to President Lagos. Uh, I believe your microphone is working now. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> well, let me tell you that I would like to start saying that from my point of view, this is the third crisis in these 20 years on the first 21st century. The first one was the September 11 attack in New York by Al-Qaeda, and a new element was introduced in international relations. At that time, everybody knew that the discussion was going to take place at the Security Council. In other words, there was an institution to deal with a crisis like that. And at the very end, 2003, all of us end up at the Security Council. And we know the results. The second crisis, well, it's funny. The second crisis, the economic one, or if you prefer, the financial crisis that later on became an economic crisis, that one, President Bush, yes, President Bush, decided that the right place to discuss were not going to be the G7, the major economies of the world but it was necessary to have the G20. I mean, the other important element from developing countries, let's say China, in India, Brazil, Mexico, etc. And then the following year, 2009, you have in London, precisely in London, and Gordon Brown as a prime minister, well, they produce a very important element they were able to increase the capital of the IMF from 250 billion to 750 billion. They multiplied by three, by three, the capital of the IMF in just 30 minutes. That was really astonishing, don't you think so? And where are we going to discuss this one? That is going to be a much bigger economic crisis after the pandemic is over, 
but while the, when the pandemic is over, the lockdown that we have in all of our countries means tremendous losses everywhere. So, the kind of crisis that we have is the largest one that I have ever known. And it's the largest one because of the pandemia from the sanitary point of view, but it's going to be much larger than the crisis of 2008 to 2009. And therefore, the question is, and where are we going to discuss this? Where is the place to talk about? Let me be very honest. This is the major crisis of the multilateral system. All the institutions that we used to know that probably could work are not working anymore, are not working anymore. Either because you have the big fight between China and United States, either because the European Union that was a solar, was a very important pillar in the international institutions, has some problems, just to say that. that. But the fact is that when we see the point of view of Latin America, then what about you, Latin American leaders, are doing? And therefore, my impression is that all the institutions that we used to have, I remember the group of Rio de Janeiro, that was all the Latin American countries, the ones that returned to democracy, decided to have some informal meetings. And it was possible to do with that. That doesn't exist anymore. Therefore, there is no really any kind of institutions in Latin America to speak with one voice. And this is our major problem today. There's no question on that. After saying this, I would say, well, what about the future? I would like to make the distinction between the pandemia, and the pandemia is going to be very difficult, but at the very end, we will defeat the pandemic. Okay. Now, we all know that in the long run, the only defeat is because a vaccine is going to be discovered. And a pharmaceutical... A solution for those that already has the pandemia. But other than that, the second point, which is much more important, the economic consequences and the social and economic consequences of this pandemia, because our countries are going to be much poorer. In this year, everybody will say that probably Latin American countries will have a diminishing of about 5 to 7 percent of our gross domestic product at the, at the regional level. It's going to be the largest drop during the last uh, more than 30 years. Would you have to go back probably to the crisis in 1929, last century, in, to have something similar to what we are going to have now? And then the problem is that because of these very difficult social and economic conditions, what do we have for this year and the next one? It's tremendous challenges from the point of view of how we're going to be able to solve those things. And let me be also very often. In Latin America, Brazil and Mexico are the big players. Then you have a middle income players. And then you have there, it's true, but those big players, each of them, has its own problems and are not worried about what is going on about the region. 
This is the big difference with regard to the former leaders that we have here, like Cardoso or like Cedillo, that they were very clear what is the responsibility also, because they were big players with regard to the rest of Latin America. And here, well, probably because what used to be the number one big player in the world, United States, in this crisis doesn't exist. It's the first time that the United States is not playing any role at all. Incredible. But this is the case. And then, what do we have next? What are we going to do with regard to our social and economic problems? Because it's true. The degree of inequality in Latin America is very large. It's going to be much larger after this crisis. And therefore... There is going to be, and it's going to be necessary then to have some kind of very clear discussion. What kind of social contract are we going to be able to rebuild after this crisis? Until what extent is going to be possible to have a large, large agreement in our own societies and within other Latin American countries? Therefore, there are two kinds of agreements extremely important to be able to build. In our own countries, is going to be a new social contract in, in Chile? Is it possible to have that? If it is possible to understand where we would like to be in the next 10 to 15 years, we have room for that. Here was a former Minister of Finance, and we have managed our finance in a good way, and all, all the public debt is no more than 30%, 30% of our gross domestic product. So we have room to get money abroad, but with one condition, I say, how are we going to pay for that money that we can get now, and where is going to be our tax reform that is going to be needed to pay for that. And those, those things have to go together. And the social contract has to take into account how are we going to introduce a tax system that makes a difference before and after taxes and transference with regard to the Gini Index of Inequality. Because most Latin American countries have no difference before or after taxes with regard to the Gini index. So I think that some kind of agreement, new social contract is going to be necessary. In our countries, and also with the other countries. And then I would say, yes, every situation, every country is different. We can go and get some money and play for the new rules of the game that we would like to establish. But at the same time, it's going to be necessary to understand that that social contract is going to be also made with other Latin American countries. And here I think that it's very important to reestablish some kind of agreement among ourselves in order to play a role in the international affairs. Unless we speak with one voice, nobody will listen what Latin Americans would like to say. And we are going to be at the mercy of some other cases, but not, we are not going to be part of that influence.
And this is why I think it's so important then, to what extent we in Latin America can speak now again with one voice. When we spoke with one voice, somebody will listen. Otherwise, Latin America doesn't exist. Sorry to be so blunt in what I'm saying, but I feel really, because I play some role when we were able to speak with one voice and the people will listen. That thank I you. think is probably the biggest, the biggest problem that we have to face. And thank very, you for the invitation. Thank you, President Lagos, very important message. Let me turn now to Ernesto Zadillo, who was president of Mexico from 1994 to 2000. He holds a PhD in economics from Yale University, was Under Secretary of Planning and Budget Control, uh, and also Secretary of Education in Mexico. We've heard lots about the need for leadership from the big players. So over to Mexico. Uh, well, I thank uh, Director Shafiq and Professor Velasco for their invitation to be part of this session. I am very pleased to be in the excellent company of my admired friends. Unlike President Santos, I was not a student at LSE, but I pride myself on the fact that my first academic job after finishing my government service was at LSE, where I had a wonderful stay in the fall of 2001, experience that, among other things, really paved my way to start a new career at Yale University, where I have enjoyed my longest serving job since 2002. I wish we were gathering today for a different reason than the public health consequences and immense economic damage that the COVID-19 pandemic is having in Latin America. It is a sad reason, but one that warrants our keen attention since it is a shock that in all likelihood will surpass other adverse circumstances endured by our countries in many generations. How painful these unfortunate episodes will prove to be for each of our countries will depend on how alert their governments were in each case to the early signs of the tragedy and skillful in implementing strong actions. Unfortunately, the policy reactions in our countries have been rather uneven. Some governments quickly undertook preparations and reacted decisively and efficiently, indeed making the protection of the public's health their primary objective. In some other significant cases, however, preparations and policy reactions were rather incompetent. In those cases, governments tended to neglect or minimize the risks stemming from the pandemic. Due to ignorance or on purpose, had misinformed their citizens and have frequently disregarded the scientific evidence, the lessons learned in other countries savaged by the pandemic, and their own experts' opinion. Far from uniting their societies to fight and defeat the pandemic, they have played the cards of division, demagoguery, and populism as if they saw in this crisis not a challenge, but an opportunity to reaffirm their political power and their ideological agendas. It is too soon, as President Chinchilla was saying, to speculate as to what precise and specific economic, social, and political mark the pandemic will leave in its wake in Latin America in every one of our countries. 
say in six months or one year when hopefully the pandemic will be restrained. We will probably be observing a rather unequal situation across countries where some could conceivably have a prompt recovery and others suffer a protracted crisis. Still, it is not terrible, uh, terribly adventurous to imagine today the general circumstances that by then be facing our countries domestically and internationally. For example, all of our economies will have contracted significantly in 2020, in some cases, including our largest countries dramatically. I think the 5.2 projection of the IMF will be revised uh, upwards, that is to say it's going to be worse. I don't see how Latin America can have uh, a, a contraction that uh, is uh, no uh, less than 8% uh, this year, given what is happening in Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and other countries. Unemployment, open and partial, will have risen enormously, leading to a situation of social and, in some cases, political despair. The gains against poverty achieved between the end of the 20th century and the middle of the last decade could well have been erased in full in a few months. Needless to say, the situation in most of our countries, as far as security and justice are concerned, will have worsened from the dismal level already suffered. Public finances, meaning synthetically the fiscal balance and the public debt, will have, in all cases, deteriorated sharply. In some instances, such a deterioration would have happened in a planned and managed way in response to the pandemic and its economic consequences. In other cases, the deterioration would be unplanned and unmanaged, an Xbox One. The ex-ante decision to avoid a fiscal deterioration which will determine a GDP contraction sharper than those in other countries, might well cause an even bigger fiscal damage as a result of a severe contraction in tax revenues. Outside your region, all the other major economies will also have suffered practically unprecedented contractions, and their prospects for full recovery will be rather uncertain. Notwithstanding the massive interventions of the U.S. Federal Reserve and other key central banks to inject liquidity and backstop their respective financial systems, access to international capital markets will be rather limited in the best of cases for some of our countries and close to non-existent for others. And I am sorry to say that just like in the last decade, many countries in Latin America, because of the general macroeconomic uh, situation and in financial markets, will be, despite the dramatic situation of our economies, will be net exporters of capital when we most need that capital. Of course, commodity crisis will continue to be severely depressed, even if China recovers. Earnings from tourism and worker remittances will also have dwindled. Perhaps uh, even worse than the recessionary condition of the global economy, and this was uh, emphasized by President Santos and President Lagos, what would be at play even more patently in a few months is whether or not globalization and whatever global governance we have had until recently 
really the question will be whether those will continue. Irrespective of how deep and unfavorable the current crisis proves to be in each of our countries, the challenge then should not be about just going back to the trend disrupted by the pandemic. And I am very happy to hear exactly that from President Chinchilla, from President Cardoso, from all my colleagues. This cannot be, again, business as usual. The trend we had before was bad to begin with. But the crisis will, on the one hand, put dramatically in evidence once again the essential weaknesses that have perennially retarded the region's development, while on the other, ironically, it may pose a unique opportunity to address those weaknesses decisively and effectively at last. The pain to be endured will make uh, even more evident our most essential weaknesses, including our economy's failure to grow and converge with the already developed ones, and that our societies continue to be fractured between the haves and the have-nots. The crisis exploding this spring, however painful it proves to be, paradoxically could also provide an opportunity to diagnose anew, with clear eyes, the key impediments to Latin American development. As the yields of poverty and inequality, penurious health services, injustice and insecurity manifest themselves with great force throughout the critical phase of the pandemic, there may be an opportunity, rather sooner than later, to engage in a process of reckoning on the secular development failures of our countries and the reforms necessary to overcome such failures. I am hopeful that LSE, with its impressive intellectual resources, will contribute to identify such reforms along with the political economy strategies to make them feasible. Thank you, Madam Director. Thank you. Thank you, President Zadio. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, the, leading the charge on the LSC's attempt to try and contribute to this very important debate is my colleague, Andres Velasco, who I'm going to turn to now. He is the Dean of our School of Public Policy and uh, was former Minister of Finance in Chile and is uh, coordinating much of the work at the LSE on the response to COVID to try and coalesce the intellectual capacity of the school to contribute at this critical time. Andres, over to you. Thank you very, very much, Minouche. Thank you to all the presidents for joining us. Uh, let me reiterate what a great honor and pleasure it is for the London School of Economics to have everybody join in. Let me just summarize that great honor with one sentence anecdote. I sent an invitation to a senior journalist here in London with a listing of all the five presidents. And he replied to me, those are the kinds of leaders Latin America needs in this crisis. And I will simply add, I agree. Um, so it is a tremendous pleasure to uh, have everybody around this virtual table. We're going to go to the questions, and um, needless to say, we're running short of time, so I will ask uh, the presidents to keep uh, the answers as concise and brief as uh, it is possible. And because President Chinchilla of Costa Rica may have to leave early, I'm going to turn to her first with two questions uh, about Costa Rica, but really about 
what we can learn from Costa Rica uh, in the rest of the world. First, the good part. If one were to choose three countries, and they happen to be three small countries, where the fight against the pandemic has been particularly effective, three names that come to mind are Taiwan, New Zealand, and Costa Rica. So first question for you, Madam President, um, what did Costa Rica do right? And what can we learn from that experience? But before I let you go, let me uh, add a second half, all of it in two minutes, of course, uh, which may be somewhat less uh, hopeful. When um, I was in university many years ago, one used to learn that there were three countries in Latin America where the uh, public's evaluation of democracy was very high. One was Uruguay, was, one was my own country, Chile, and the other was Costa Rica. And as you pointed out, uh, in all three countries, uh, citizens' uh, confidence in democracy has gone downhill massively. So what can we learn about that? How do we go back to the way things used to be? Over to you, Madam President. Thank you so much, Andres, for uh, those very kind words. Um, but just to be clear, I'm not looking for any additional job. I'm, I'm feeling very comfortable <laughs> with, with things I'm doing now. <laughs> um, well, um, it, certainly Costa Rica was able to uh, flatten the curve very early uh, and also avoided uh, high contagion rates and the collapse of the health system. After two months of social distancing measures, uh, we are among the countries in the world with less mortality rates. And that is, you know, the best possible uh, news that you can have during this crisis. We are already opening uh, the economy very slow, of course, and in a very careful way. In my criteria, um, there were tricky factors for our su success so far. Uh, the first one has to do with the health system. Um, our system is globally recognized as one of the most robust uh, in the region and beyond with a model of universal access. It's a coverage uh, that have been working very well for the last more than 50 years. And also it has a network of decentralized basic care with presence in the whole territory. So thanks to this system, Costa Rica is at the level of developed countries, for example, in, uh, in terms of infant mortality, life expectancy and other kind of health indicators. Uh, our, our model is particularly strong in disease prevention. And the key, the key to face COVID-19 seems to be precisely contagion prevention and preparedness. Uh, the main goal is to avoid the exponential growth of contagions and the collapse of the uh, health systems. So it is clear as a lesson that those countries with better health system will be better equipped to overcome the pandemic. The second, um, the second uh, factor is the collaboration of people and their discipline, attitude, which have been allowed to sanitary orders to be easily implemented. There is no need here to, for example, resort to extreme lockdowns or curfews as in other countries um, in order to follow the uh, sanitary directions. In regard to this, a greater importance relies uh, on the fact that citizens actually believe in institutions and the norms issued by the authorities. Uh, so there is a kind of, you know, 
of uh, uh, a share of sense of purpose, a fully shared common uh, civic values at this point is like when we, um, we have, you know, our football team playing uh, in, a, in, a, you know, in a soccer, in a soccer, uh, a soccer team playing, we, we all are wearing the jersey at this moment uh, and, you know, uh, feeling uh, very committed uh, with the nation as a whole. So finally, the third key uh, factor, I would say, is political leadership. Uh, both government and the opposition parties represented in Congress have been very respectful of technical and scientific expertise. And although there are discussions regarding the measures adopted, that conversation has not hampered the necessary agreements to respond to the pandemic in a suitable manner. So, of course, there are other kind of more specific reasons, but as a general approach, I will say that the quality of the health system, the respect of the rules by the people, and the quality of political leadership are very critical to define the outcome uh, to uh, this crisis. Thank you, Madam President. Let me turn now to um, Presidente Cardoso from Brazil. Uh, I'm going to turn to politics, Mr. President. Um, two stories in the press about Brazil in the last couple of days were striking. Minouche mentioned one. The FT had a story yesterday saying that uh, Brazil is a new hotspot uh, when it comes to contagion. And there was another story uh, which quoted the um, governor of the state of Sao Paulo, João Doria, who said that Brazil is suffering not from one virus, but from two. And that the second virus lives in Planalto. For those of you who might not know it, Planalto is the presidential palace in Brasilia. Uh, you said a little bit uh, in your first uh, remarks, Mr. President, about how Brazil got here. I want uh, to invite you to reflect on how it is that the rest of Latin America can learn from Brazil to avoid this kind of uh, populism from infecting our politics in the future. I would like to know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, well, what happened in Latin America is quite different from others. Maybe it depends on each country. Uh, as you know, I live in Chile and I know relatively well some countries in Latin America. Each one has different uh, histories and different uh, political cultures. Maybe there is a one difference among the countries. Big countries have more difficulties in dealing with problems. This applies to Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil, where we have 220 million people. Uh, Costa Rica, well, I don't know, but they have some environment. It's small. Uh, Uruguay is also small. And Chile is not that small, but anyhow, comparatively, yes. So I think the big countries have tremendous problems because it's uh, more difficult to fight poverty, it's more difficult to implement political decisions by the, by the center of the government, so on and so forth. So we have to, to, to look with attention what's going on, but you have not to, to confuse what is possible in some countries and what is possible in other countries. In our case, in the case of Brazil, we have a multitudinarian society. So uh, you have to take this into account. And we have democracy, we have liberty, freedom. Everyone has a say. In, in, there is no fear in that, even now in Brazil, no fear. 
in the, in 64 and after 64 during, during the authoritarian regimes we had fear in brazil that's not the case the common per, per, per person has no idea that there is a danger for democracy they just don't realize that well mm-hmm. on the other hand uh, we have a, 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 a government a central government who is influenced by high uh, rightist ideas uh, very close to what is going on in america in the united states and some parts of europe so uh, but they uh, they had support of the of the of had support of the population why because it was a, a, a tremendous fear some time ago as a consequence of the economic disaster produced by the former presidents, mainly President Dilma Rousseff. She, I, love, I like her, she's a good, good person, but anyhow, she was not able as president. She was not capable to express the sentiment of, of people and she was not looking after the economy with the necessary care. Then President uh, Temer tried to, well, to occupy the vacuum. He tried, but he was for, for a brief period of time and it was, could not, would not be successful. Then came President uh, Bolsonaro. President Bolsonaro came with a wave of rightism in the world. And he himself was a man who has been all times uh, very expressive in protesting against the establishment. Once long time ago, he said that Brazil would be safe if 200,000 people would be killed, including President Cardoso. Well, okay, this was before. It was a simplistic approach. Well, but he has a, a minister of economy, was for a trader in Chicago, and mm-hmm. came in and looking after the fiscal situation, said what is necessary, reforms. Well, I see, I think it's, it's correct. We need some reform. But then how? There is a, a, a kind of non-conformity between the ideas, the, the practice of the president and the ideas of the, 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 the foreign the economic finance minister and reality. Now everyone is more Keynesian than Chicagian. Chicago, <laughs> Chicago is old time when we're crossing a period of, of, of the crisis. We need a government who be sensible of the sense of people, so to expend money. We don't have the money, so Brazil will be much more indebted at, at the end of the process. Wow. So uh, I think that this peculiarity, which is not only Brazil, but then which exists in, in, in Brazil, now transforming the, the president is a bad guy. If you look, look at the media, everyone is criticizing him. Well, but they were supported by people. So he expressed the sentiment at one point in time. Uh, I don't know what, to, uh, how was this possible? He had always the same idea he is, is implying now. For, for, now the media is publishing the idea, the old ideas are not old, are the same ones that he believes. Uh, he has a kind of magic that is possible to, well, the important thing is that Brazil will be number one, a, a, a powerful economy. But we are no more. So we are as impoverished as other countries of Latin America. We will suffer the consequences of not just of the pandemic, but also of the 
economic disaster in which you are included. So, if you, you look ahead, uh, everyone of you stressed the importance of leadership. I think it's okay. In our days, as fragmented as societies are, more we need people who are capable to become references for the country, for the, for the nation. And there is another phenomenon which I would like to stress. I will be 90 years old next year. Well, what is needed now is also some, something more young, mm -hmm. uh, a new generation. This is important because the new generation, I, I said before, is more apt to understand what's going on in terms of technology, in terms of the new world, so on and so forth. But now we are in a transitional moment. But Bolsonaro was elected as if he would represent a new generation. But he has old ideas. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of inconsequence and what people want and what he can perform. So now he's declining in terms of approval by, by people. But I'm not lo looking yet for a new leader, a real leader. It's time for that. We have now local elections in next year, this year, the end of the year. Then we have maybe next year, uh, it will be necessary to see who will be kept capable to express the sentiment of the Brazilian population, our hopes, uh, in coherence with what is possible in the world. So I, I think that we are in the, not just the pandemic, but also a transitional political moment. Right? And so we have to be patient. I think it's simple for me to say to be patient. <laughs> Fight in power? No, they, they need now. I don't need now. I, I can I can become sociologist or political scientist and look uh, horizons. See, but then how I think it's necessary to take into account that some new forces will emerge. Brazil is a, uh, as you know, the big country has and has some advancements. Anyway, in what parts of the Brazilian economy are more, uh, how can I put, more strong, more solidified? I would say first one is agriculture. And why the Brazilian culture is in good shape? Because science and technology have been introduced in uh, agriculture. Every seed in Brazil is the result of several years of research, uh, experimentation, so on and so forth. So we have a very strong uh, uh, agriculture and export agriculture. And China become client number one of Brazil, not America. America number two, then comes Europe. So this is a, a point of, of advantage. As far as a, a China recover, it will be better for us because we can export our soya bean, so on and, and so forth. Second point, we had, I, I, I said it before, a financial system. The banking system in Brazil is very concentrated. There are four or five big banks. But uh, we have a financial system, including someone belong to the federal government. So our banks are also banks in, living in the modernity, contemporaneity. They have the instruments to do that. Uh, so these are the what is behind, a little bit behind. What has been in the past, our glory, industry. Because industry in the modern world is a, is a, is a shame of industry, not one industry, it's a shame. And it's, it's, it's globalized. 
And in practice, we have been, of course, we have some where I kept to, to, to produce planes, for instance, which is requires some technology. But it maybe what do you have in space? Almost zero. Huh? Uh, we have some some advancement in in the microsciences, in microbiology, so on and so forth. So, but then how our industry it is industry is important, and the, the country has been capable to, to implement some advancement in it. So cannot put aside this this process. So our main question is not a, not necessarily came from the economic side. I'm not saying that we don't have problems. But our problems are political problems, social and political problems. If you if you don't have leadership, if you don't have cap people capable to exert a, a leadership and to know what's going in the world, mm -hmm. it's impossible to, to continue to be one big country. And there, in, in the Brazilian anthem, there is a, a phrase who says, "We'll be uh, always in in, in a, a beautiful uh, band." You know, I don't know how to say this in English. Anyhow, it uh, means that we are so, so so well gifted by nature that we don't need anything. We can't live. So that's not the sense now. We have to, to be alert, to have to be awake, and have to be competent. So I think that our main fragility came from the fact that we have not in the political system capacity to promote this kind of leadership. Uh, of course, I'm not denying the importance of the, what is going on in, in public health, so on and so forth, the, uh, or the virus, the coronavirus, etc. But after that, after that, you have to, 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 to be capable to, again, to believe in the country. Uh, I think this is, this, is, this is crucial. In this, it requires leadership. It requires a new leadership, not our leadership. Uh, we are the best. We need someone more uh, young, and not just young in age, but in mind, <laughs> to understand what's going on, what is necessary. So that's why I'm, in spite of all, not that pessimist. I know the situation is terrible. It's terrible. But anyhow, we have possibilities. I hope the new generation will, will emerge and be capable to implement you know, a new mood a new, you know, uh, way of uh, being in correspondence with the world. Last word. In my generation, we discovered Latin America. We discovered. Maybe other libraries before as well, I don't know. But mm -hmm. we discovered. I, I, I was not able to speak any Spanish. I learned my poor Spanish when I was living in Europe, in, in, in Paris. Mm -hmm. But when I came to Chile, Ricardo probably will remember, my Spanish was terrible. <laughs> so, because Brazil always was closing the eyes vis-a-vis -vis our, our, our neighbors. Close, well, this is not no more like that. No yeah. more like that. So I think that it's very important what has been said by both Ernesto and Ricardo. We need to take into account that we need to reinforce our, our ties with Latin America. And as the only way to, be, to have a voice in the world, and we are one of the few, those who speaking to this morning here, uh, who have some voice. And why we had some voice? Because we have been capable to, in our generation, to interconnect with other people. Clinton is my friend. Tony mm -hmm. Blair is my friend. In France as well. 
-hmm. in, in Germany as well. Those who are leaders with us, we start to understand that we cannot be alone. The trend, the trend in the, after the pandemic will be to be aloneness. We have to be against this because of our interests. We need to be connected and we need to reinvent, if I can put like that, at this one for Brazilians, Latin America. We are become again isolated from, from the region, again isolated. I think this is bad, not just bad for Latin America, but bad for us. I think our strength, our forces, our, our, our say in the world will depend on our cooperation. And as it been stressed by Odyssey to, to this morning, uh, the cooperative system has been dismantled. We don't have where, place to speak, place to coordinate. And this will be absolutely necessary to revival our, our histories, in fact. I, sp I stop here, or other, I speak too much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, President Cardozo. Um, I'm going to turn quickly to uh, Presidente Lagos from Chile, and I will remind uh, uh, our guests that um, we don't have that much time left, and we'd like to finish the round and maybe give students uh, the chance to ask a question or two. So, Presidente Lagos, um, you compared the crisis 10 years ago to the crisis today and concluded that um, a crisis is an opportunity we should not waste. And perhaps this, this opportunity today is to craft a new social contract. You mentioned one element of that social contract in Latin America. We need to tax people who make money, who have high incomes more. So that's component one. Can you very briefly uh, give us a couple more components of that social contract that we should be aiming to um, build so that we're not back in another crisis in five or ten years from now? Well, it seems to me that the uh, other two points of that uh, social contract will have to do to two major areas that are still in the process of how you want to solve it. Chilean population is not growing, mm -hmm. but Chilean population is getting older. And therefore, the question of social security and what about uh, after that mm -hmm. is probably one of the major areas to discuss. And why I say it's necessary some kind of global understanding, because either you go for a system of capitalization or your own capitalization, or you go for a system of uh, that the people that is working has to pay for those that already retire. I think that you will need to have a mix of those two things. But what is very clear that to have good social security, you need at least 20% of your salary going for your social security later. And we are far, far away from that 20%, as you know. And therefore, this is a question that will require a very clear understanding of different sectors of society, because it's crucial. And number two, that I do think that because of this pandemic is becoming very clear, with the question of the health system, in what sense? That I used to learn when I was uh, in government, that the National Health Service in the UK 
used to spend 50% of the total budget on health, on primary health care, and only the other 50% going to hospitals. And the idea was that primary health care are supposed to prevent, mm-hmm. not to cure, but more to prevent. If this is the case, then the big issue would be in Chile. I was able to rise those 12% going to primary health care to 30%. We are still far away from the UK with the 50. Why say this? Because with regard to this pandemia, all the emphasis from the point of view of the government has been in how many beds and how many uh, particular instruments, etc., etc. So the idea has been devoted to the problems of how are we going to cure those that are already infected. But what about prevention? And I think that this is probably the most important area that still we have to take care of with regard to our health system. If you have those two things, health and social security, then I would say you need the third point, that is the most difficult one. We have been rather successful to defeating poverty. And those people that leave poverty behind has different kinds of demands. They are still not really middle classes, but they are going in that direction. And the amount of need that they have are quite different from the need that you have when you are poor or indigent. And therefore, the big question is, what kind of new social policies for those that are emerging that will require different things? Let me put this way. Bovio used to say that uh, in a democracy, all of us has to define that we are going to be equal in something. And what is equal in something means that that is the minimum civilizatorio of that country. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, you are going to be equal in something. Well, education. 80 years ago, we say four years of education is enough. Four, only four. Today, you say 12 years is enough. Okay. So, the minimum civilizatorio is a dynamic concept. The question is, what is going to be the minimum civilizatorio when you are arriving close to, you are not poor, but still you are not really middle class, you are something going up. And what are the demands that you will have? And those demands are much bigger than the demands that you used to have when you were poor. And the big question is, what is going to be the social agreement in that uh, social contract with regard to how you're going to be able to increase the minimum civilizatorio, according to Bovio. Final point. Bovio used to say, look, that minimum civilizatorio is going to be defined by the citizens, not by the consumers. Mm -hmm. And 
if you are a citizen, all of us are citizens, are all of us has the same weight, just one vote. Mm -hmm. But if the minimum civilization is going to be defined by consumers, well, consumer has different purchasing power. Therefore, I would say here is something very important in today's Chile. How are we going to define those minimum for those emerging people from poverty to become middle class? And that is really a question extremely difficult to define. Thank you. Just one example. Just one example. You go to, to see the social neighborhood that has been built, and the question is, sir, what kind of house do you build? There is no place where I can park my car. That, that's, that's somebody that is emerging, you know? And my only answer is, sorry, sir, but did you think that you are going to have a car 20 years ago? Oh, no, sir, I never thought that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that's, that's the difference, you know? How are you going to be able to deal with those emerging people? Very difficult, the answer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Thanks for bringing Norberto Bobbio into the conversation. After all, we are the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, <laughs> uh, President Santos, let me maybe stay on the same subject. Um, you spoke in your early remarks uh, about the risk that um, people would fall back into poverty. Uh, as a result of this pandemic. Maybe that family that uh, President Lagos was speaking about will no longer have a car, they'll have to sell it because of, uh, of the financial squeeze. It is also likely that this pandemic will um, reinforce old inequalities and make new ones appear. The inequality between people who can work at home and those who cannot, the inequality between older people who are exposed to the contagion and younger people who are not and wish they could go to work, the inequality between formal workers who can get help from the government, informal workers uh, who cannot, or it's more difficult to reach them. Um, again, in the spirit of three-point plans and in two minutes, uh, what are the couple of things, two or three things that you know you put at the very top of the agenda to fight that uh, possible or likely uh, increase in both poverty and inequality as a result of this pandemic? Thank you. I know we're very short of time, so I will be very brief. Uh, 35 years ago, when I was a student at the LSE, I had a, a teacher, Amartya Sen. Um, he then won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And uh, 35 years later, I called him and said, please help me fight poverty in my country. And he said, yes. And uh, he had, since then, a very different view of how to fight, how to measure and fight, uh, fight poverty. Instead of measuring poverty by how much you earn is how much you have, your basic necessities. Mm -hmm. And I applied his theory in Colombia 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, that uh, allowed my country and my government to be very, very effective mm -hmm. in fighting poverty because it gave me uh, the guidance to where I should invest my social uh, uh, resources to have the highest impact in fighting poverty. And so I think we have uh, now an opportunity 
to use these kind of methods, different from what we have used before in Latin America, because we're going to see a tremendous increase in poverty to reshape our policies to fight poverty. And one of those specific policies is the multi-dimensional index that was uh, in a way inspired by a former professor of the LSE, Amartya Sen. Uh, maybe a second uh, uh, comment would be in the, in the crisis of the uh, beginning of the century, I was Minister of Finance in Colombia, and we created, following what uh, was done in Brazil and Mexico, the uh, conditional cash transfer systems. Uh, we created them, I remember very well, uh, on a temporary basis. We said this is going to be temporary, uh, uh, and when we are successful in private party, they will do, they will be uh, abolished. Well, politically, it was impossible to abolish it. Uh, and uh, today we have a good, um, a good opportunity to use these type of policies to address, to, to get to the more vulnerable sectors and the more informal sectors uh, to fight uh, uh, the vulnerability, but we have to do a very, very important effort in uh, improving the efficiency of the system, of the governments, and fighting corruption. Much of the, of the social transfer system uh, was impregnated by corruption and by inefficiency. Uh, we have the system, we can uh, increase it and uh, strengthen it, but it needs a, a re-engineering to be much more effective. Uh, with that, I stop. Thank you, President. Thank you for, for uh, going straight to the point. Uh, let me t turn now to uh, President Cedillo of, uh, of Mexico. Mr. President, um, you've spoken today and, and elsewhere about the importance of uh, a kind of politics that um, is serious, responsible, that uh, looks at science, looks at evidence um, when formulating policies. And it's pretty clear, as you said in your remarks, that in this crisis, some governments in Latin America have, and some governments in Latin America have not. I want to take you to the sphere of, of politics. Are the governments that have paid little attention to evidence and science going to pay at the polls for that? Will citizens uh, say, throw them out because they were so inefficient at fighting the pandemic? Or could it be that because inevitably a crisis brings back um, not only inequality and poverty, but also frustration, lack of trust, divisions, lack of cohesion, maybe demagoguery will not suffer at the polls uh, and uh, leaders of that type uh, will in fact continue ruling in Latin America. So who's going to win and who's going to lose uh, politically and what can we do about it, Mr. President? Well, you know, I happen to be an economist, not a political scientist, so I'm not very good at making uh, uh, political uh, predictions. I leave that to President Cardoso <laughs> and to others. Uh, but I would like to believe that if democracy functions, and I think it's, it does function, then I think it will be evident uh, for people 
in a few months' uh, time, you know, what governments have told people the truth, what governments have uh, acted uh, responsibly, uh, what governments have been wise enough to change, you know, fact change. Now I have changed my opinion and will be more pragmatic and try to address uh, the problems at hand and the problems that I see are coming medium and long uh, term. Uh, I hope that that will be in general the reaction. I don't want uh, any government to be thrown out. I want democracy according to the rules, to constitutions, to function. Uh, and some countries will have to endure, you know, still for some time, uh, governments that probably are not uh, that good. But at the end of the day, I think one thing we cannot afford to lose in Latin America is the democracy that with so much effort, uh, sacrifice throughout many generations, we have built. I think that will be the worst thing that could happen, that if we allow the demagogues and the populists at this point to take advantage of this crisis to even uh, to undermine even more our democracy. Unfortunately, as we speak, uh, some leaders in Latin America are seeing the crisis as an opportunity not to serve the people and to solve the problems, but rather to weaken our democracies, to centralize power, to undermine the checks and balances. And I think rejecting that at this point is extremely important. What we want to have at the end of this crisis is to have, of course, our countries, but we want those countries with the democracies that people that, uh, like the people that accompany me in this panel, you know, have fought for. Uh, and I think I have done my very modest part in, in my own country. I think the only thing that should not be negotiable at this point is uh, our democracy. So I hope those leaders understand that. And rather than using this crisis to undermine even more, because with their behavior in the past, they have undermined democracy. Well, I hope they think uh, twice now and they take the responsibility, constitutional responsibility, and are really respectful of our democracy and the rule of law. Thank you, Mr. President. I think that answer reveals that you're a PhD in economics who knows a fair bit about politics. <laughs> um, we are really short time, but I want to make sure that at least um, we answer one uh, question from the students. I'm looking at the uh, chat function here. Uh, many students, I will not have the time to read their names, have asked about the environment. And the question gets worded differently, but uh, it goes more or less like this. Because we're so focused on the virus, are we going to neglect climate change? Or to put it the other way around, maybe economic reconstruction after the virus can be done in ways, as Nick Stern, for instance, of the LSE has suggested, uh, can be good for the environment and for the economy and for employment. Um, brief answer um, for anybody who would like to uh, provide it. Let me add one word about this climate change. I started to work with uh, about the question of climate a long time ago because I had a friend uh, in, in Assis Sachs, was born in Poland, living in Brazil, and now he's a professor in France. And he was very close. 
to the, the, the first meeting, big meeting in Stockholm. So I think that now this is a, a very a crucial question for the young generations and for us. See? And unfortunately, what was looking in, in Brazil is the maybe the replacement of the preoccupation with the climate by preoccupation with development, as if they were opposed to each other. See? So I think it's very important to keep in your mind that in spite of crisis, in spite of shortage of money, so on and so forth, the question of climate will be in the future very important. And what has been said by NSD, I agree, I, I fully agree with him, but then how it will depend on our capacity to voice. In, in political life, always depend how we are capable or not to transform into words sensible to people, understandable by reason, and capable to form a majority. I think that one of the main questions for the, after the crisis will be climate change. You have to see how it will be possible to relate each other, the situation of public health with the situation of, 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 of climate change. We have a big forest, as everyone knows, mm. in Brazil. And not just the Amazonic forest, but the other yeah. forests. We made enormous effort in trying to, 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 to put together some agricultural advancement and protection to the, into the nature. It's not necessary to destroy the nature, to increase uh, agriculture or uh, cattle, so on and so forth. It's much better to increase through te technology. So this is a key question, and the new generation are keen with this question. I think that's very important what you ask us to respond. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. I see both President Santos and President Lagos eager to intervene. We're way over time. So I will, um, uh, President Santos, you know, less than one minute, and then we will hand it over back to Minouche. Thank you. In terms of climate change, uh, and this is a bit of wishful thinking, but I hope uh, this becomes true. This pandemic, uh, is uh, teaching the world, hopefully, that we have to hear what science and the evidence says. So if we hear what science and the evidence says, then we will be able to fight climate change with a much more effective policy and effective tools. So I think a legacy from the pandemic could be good for climate change. And lastly, just two words on something for the LSE. The LSE has been the uh, an inspiration for social democracy, and then many years later, uh, the third way, um, the third way, the former director of the LSE was the inventor, Anthony Giddens. I think uh, Cardoso was third way, mm -hmm. Lagos was third way, Cedillo mm -hmm. was third way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would be great if we have a new version of this third way, a new paradigm that leaders can grab and sell to their populations. I think very much uh, uh, a new paradigm is needed, and the LSC could be a tremendous source. Thank you. The name was Progressive Governance. I thank you. Thank you so much. We will walk out of here ready to craft maybe the fourth wave. I see President Lagos uh, really wants to intervene in climate change. I know he's thought long and hard about it. Uh, very briefly to President Lagos, very briefly to President Cedillo, and then back to Minouche. Thank you very much. Thank you.
I, I only say this. We belong to the generation of per capita income. <laughs> and per capita income was so much important in our discussion. How do you increase per capita income, per capita, etc., etc. Now I think we're going to go to a next generation. And sir, you are so proud of your per capita income. Can you please tell me what is your per capita emission? Because it's your per capita emission what is going to provide you a, a certificate of how civilized are you. <laughs> and all of us have to remember that for the year 2050, human beings are we going to be, super, well, those that are living during those days are going to be living, uh, and they say that uh, at least you cannot emit more than two tons per person. And today, all of us emit much more than that. And therefore, the big issue is, are we going to be able to reach that goal for 2050? And that is going to be the measure of the civilization to which you belong to, period. Thank you, Mr. President. Mm -hmm. President Cedillo, on this point, you have the last word. Uh, well, this is for students. Fighting pandemics and fighting climate change are the global public goods per excellence. And that means that you need international collective action to address the both, prob both problems. And therefore, we should take the pandemic as a great opportunity to highlight the importance of international cooperation, of understanding among all governments and societies. And you as students have a responsibility to voice that at a moment in which the most powerful country in the world, meaning the United States, has been dedicated since early 2017 to undermine and even destroy the international system. So I call upon mm -hmm. students to defend the multilateral institutions. They need to be reformed. Certainly that is the case, but we need to protect those multilateral institutions. And I am very sad, sad to say that the protection must be first and foremost vis-a-vis -vis the government of the United States. And footnote, if we really mean what we say, we should know that the best way to fight climate change is by promoting an international agreement on carbon taxation. So we have a fiscal problem that was already described by my colleagues. So this is a moment to think seriously that every one of our countries will need a carbon tax. For what? To confront the fiscal situation, but also to pay our part in providing this global public good, which is climate change uh, mitigation. Thank you, Mr. President, for that very, very important message. Minush, over to you. Thank you very Thank much, you. everyone. Thank you, Andres. I just wanted to close by first thanking the presidents for participating. Um, thank you for your past leadership. Thank you for your present leadership and your, your willingness to engage in public debates and shape public opinion. We need your wisdom now more than ever. I also wanted to thank the audience. We, uh, we had about a thousand people on the Zoom call and I don't know how many listening on Facebook. Uh, and we had well over 130 questions coming in 
from all over the world. And thank you all for engaging in this discussion and in this conversation. Finally, just to say, this is, I think you all said, this is a critical moment for Latin America and a critical moment for the world. And participating in events like this is an opportunity to learn from each other, to find solutions, and uh, and to find a way forward. And President Santos, I just wanted to affirm, we accept your challenge at the London School of Economics, <laughs> come up with a new paradigm. And over the year ahead, we will be hosting a series of events like this to try and develop a new paradigm for the post-COVID world, because we, we need to come out of this crisis with a better world, not a worse one. And so we're on the case. And thank you all for inspiring us to do so.